Today we're reading from Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Milchajah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hana, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the, Lord, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, I should have... Uh... Should have done some research, but I, I, this could be a good group exercise. There's, I think there's kind of a canon of great food movies, like movies about food that uh, is, is well underway. I just saw one recently that I'm not going to mention yet. I want to I hear great movies about food. Give me, give me some stuff. What do you got out there? Big Night. Big Night? I haven't even seen it. Okay, Big Night. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I assume the original, the pizza scenes. Yeah, that's a good one. What's that? Good burger. Good burger. Dude. No one can deny it's a good burger. Did they just make a good burger too? Straight to streaming. Uh, what else? Anybody else? The menu. Ratatouille. Pig. 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 That is a great one. The Whole Foods Hot Bar? That's a movie? You just like the Whole Foods Hot Bar a lot. Okay. 
If anybody wants to treat Vivian, you take her just down the street to the Whole Foods Hot Bar. It is pretty good. Good pizza deal there, too. Okay, what are we missing? For the canon, like the essential food movies, Ratatouille is a great, is a great one. Julie and Julia. I haven't seen that one either. I haven't seen any of these. Chocolat, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait a second. Something's causing laughter back there. What is it? Hook? What about that? Ernest goes to camp, is that what you just said? What about the scene in Pan's Labyrinth where there's that super scary monster sitting at the dinner table, but the, the food looks really good? Until, until it turns into the stuff of horrible nightmare. This is great. I've got, I need to make a list. Okay. Any, anything that hasn't been mentioned, we're dying to get out there. Super size me. Super size me, okay. For, for, the, for the ethical, uh, yeah, we need that reminder. Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty, okay. The Apple. Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast. There it is. That's the one I was going to mention. So, yeah. I know. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean you know? Because that's the only one pastors talk about? Maybe. Because we just watched it a month ago. That's right, Braden. I'm gonna, okay, so there's a group of people from this church. There's a little thing on the community board back there that gets together about, it's a kind of informal group. We call it Dwarf Hope Northeast Film Club. About once a month, we get together, watch a movie, and discuss. If any of you would like to be a part of it, you should be a part of it. Just uh, send Mindy an email. Uh, but the last one we did was this film, Babette's Feast, which a couple of us had seen. Most of us hadn't seen. I only knew of it because I feel like Tim Keller referenced it like every other sermon I ever listened to from him. It's like, i got to see this movie. Um, and I, it's hard to, to tee up a movie like this without spoiling the entire thing. I'll probably just spoil like half of it for you. Um, but in effect, it's, it's about this, this community, this Christian community, kind of a Christian sect that's super ascetic, and they, yeah, just, just very much about kind of denying pleasure and denying enjoyment in the world in order to focus on, you know, the serious spiritual matters. The thing I love about the film is the way that it depicts just this, these cold, icy relationships, both between the members of this community, these men and women, and in some ways, it seems to be suggesting between these men and women and God just begins to melt over the course of just this meal where people are enjoying the company of one another, enjoying the food, enjoying the night. And gosh, I could go on and on and on about it, but I, it, it speaks to some, It speaks to all kinds of things. I mean, I, some of us, me and Braden have been like texting about it intermittently for like a month. His, his life was ruined by this movie, actually. That's how powerful it was. Um, it speaks to so many things, but one of them is the unique power that food has to be an agent of celebration, an agent of unity, an agent of peacemaking, an agent of worship, all of these things. A good meal has that potential uh, if we will seize it. If you haven't seen Babette's Feast, go watch it, uh, especially in light of all the things we're about to talk about. It'll be a, a powerful experience. I almost guarantee it. Um, so... Uh, Food as an agent of worship. Zoom out for a second. We've been in a series now. This is week four where we've been considering a theology of worship. What does it mean to be a worshiping people? What is behind these commands to worship? And we've been using a definition, a definition that goes like this. Worship, in the big picture, is the proper, sincere, 
and joyful whole person and all of life response to the gloriously beautiful nature and activity of the triune God, who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so worship, we want to have the big picture biblical lens. It encompasses all of life. It's meant to be, it is meant to be the case that for the Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is him or herself a temple of the Holy Spirit, according to the New Testament, that wherever we go, whatever we're doing, if we have the eyes to see, if we have the recognition of God, if we're in humble submission to him and connection to him, anything we do can be worship. It doesn't mean everything we do is worship. All of us, I assume, uh, are mired in sin just as much as I am. Uh, but, but by the power of his spirit, any moment is potentially a moment of worship. And that extends down to everything we do. But then last week, we kind of zoomed in. Okay, all of that established. What about singing? What about how we often talk about worship in the church, which is typically we think of music and song and all these kinds of things. And yes, absolutely, that has a biblical place. We talked about that last week. Today, I want to talk about food as an aspect of worship, as one of those other kind of areas you can zoom in on. And you might be thinking, what? <laughs> what? Because there's, there's two primary modes of engaging with food as worship. The first is fasting, and I'm sure most of you have a kind of category for that, fasting as a spiritual discipline, uh, which fasting is just abstaining for, from food for a time, which is, uh, or from types of food. Even this, the, the rice and beans uh, month is, is kind of a type of fast. You're saying no to certain things for a particular purpose. Um, there's, so there's fasting, but the other, which I think we are much less trained to sort of view as a spiritual activity at all, is feasting in the Bible, which is particular times of celebratory eating. And it's not hard and fast, but you could probably boil it down in general to say fasting is often a response in the scriptures to difficult and heavy things in life associated with repentance and humility before God, and it's often an effort to create more space for communion with him by the negation of other things that might be a distraction. Feasting, and that, that, that's important. Let me, let me hear me say that that is important. There are all kinds of commands in the scriptures to fast. Jesus fast. Like, there, it, that is legitimate. Also, feasting, on the other hand, is often meant to be a joyful response to the gracious person and work of God. It's engaging in his good gifts of food in a spirit of hospitality towards those around you and with a spirit of worshipful celebration. So we talked about singing last week as an exclamation point. So if all of life can and should be worship, your obedience is worship, your trust is worship, you're just faithfully doing the things that you have to do as a parent or as a friend or as a work, you know, employee or whatever it is. All those things can be worship, but then there are these moments where you put an exclamation point on it and you use your whole body, your voice and your body, your arms and your legs and your, your, your lungs, all of it, to declare something about God, aided by song in the midst of a whole life of worship. Then we can think of, if that's true, we can think of feasting in very similar terms, very similar terms but in a very different way. Um, so as much as fasting is an important practice, well worth our time, uh, we, we need to give it more time than we have as a community so far, today I want to focus primarily on feasting as worship. Because as odd as it is, it may be an even more neglected practice than fasting. And I don't mean eating. I think all of us probably are eating more food, you know, whatever. But, but the spiritual, in the spiritual sense of connecting that food, that eating, that celebration to worship, I think most of us are just like, what? What is this guy even talking about? 
So that's why I want to focus on that today. We could do a sermon of, you know, fasting as worship, but that's just not going to be today. My question is, how many of us think of eating together as an avenue of worship and communion with God at all? A few. We're going to get all those hands up by the end end of the sermon, I hope. Um, So, the Bible is full of commands and examples around feasting, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And even our great kind of spiritual disciplines writers, Richard Foster, who wrote probably the most kind of influential modern book onto the spiritual disciplines in his book, Celebration of Discipline, he concludes his book with a chapter called The Discipline of Celebration. And he says that celebration is central to all the spiritual disciplines. Without a joyful spirit of festivity, the disciplines become dull, death-breathing tools in the hands of modern Pharisees. That's not what we want. And I think he might be onto something. I think he might be onto something. There has to be a robust place in the Christian life for a discipline of celebration. And one of the pieces of that is feasting. Even experientially, even just experientially, we know that there is something uniquely uniting and joyful about eating together. At meals, it is so often the case that relationships are deepened. Friendships are reestablished, new ones are made, memories are formed, communal identities are strengthened, and on and on and on. And I'm no sociologist, but it appears that this has been the case across virtually every human culture, across virtually all time. Thus, it seems, this is the design of God for food to have this kind of a a relationship to us and how we form community and memory and, and the like. So... We're going to dive into it today. First, we're going to pray. Pray for the Holy Spirit to help us. Father, we need you. We don't want to get caught up in fun ideas just for their own sake. If they're not grounded in your word, Lord, then they're, 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 they're nothing. Um, but Lord, if it is in fact what you have declared and the way you have made things to be, then we want to see it, Lord. We want to know it. We want to live into it, Lord, in obedience to you. And it seems to me that if we do, there is a lot of joy and grace and and, and loveliness and beauty here in this teaching, God. Um, So help us. Give us the eyes to see what's in your word. And then give us a vision for, for being this kind of celebrating community as a church. We need your help. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as Andrew read for us, I, I, it's a beautiful passage, isn't it? And we'll just kind of zoom in on, on the, uh, the second half of it here. But what we have here is, is a feast. I hope you saw that by the end. A feast in response to the rediscovery of the Word of God. And so um, people are breaking out. They're shouting amen spontaneously. Like, I agree with this scripture that's being read. They're lifting their hands. They're bowing their heads. They begin mourning and weeping, and in the end of it, uh, the leaders end up saying, hey guys, this is actually, I, I know you're cut to the heart, and, and that's good, this is actually supposed to be a happy moment. <laughs> this is actually supposed to be a happy moment. Like, stop crying. What you need to do is go f- take your best animals and prepare them to eat, and take your best wine and prepare it to drink, and oh yeah, and as you have extra, come bring it up here, and we're going to distribute it to anyone who doesn't have these things to eat and drink, and we're going to make sure everybody has some, because we are all going to celebrate what we've got here in this God and in his word. Um, and we have to ask, like, what led to this moment? 
because at a glance, you're kind of like, well, that's weird. Like, I've, I've never, most of us have probably never just, like, heard uh, the book of Leviticus read and been like, man, I've just got to go, I've just got to feast, you know? <laughs> but listen to what happened. I mean, this is post-exilic, so the people of God had been taken into, they were a divided kingdom. Uh, each kingdom had been taken into captivity by Assyria and by Babylon, and at this point, the people, the exiles in Babylon, had then been transferred to Persia, who was the dominant power at this point, and they were finally, after a long time in exile, away from their land, um, after the destruction of their temple and all of these things, they were finally being granted to return. And so the books of Ezra, the book, really, it's one book in the Hebrew, Ezra Nehemiah, uh, we have it as two in the English Bible, but the book of Ezra Nehemiah, uh, Ezra Nehemiah recounts the coming back into the land after this period of exile. And, you know, Zerubbabel, he led a group, and he rebuilt the temple. So the temple was rebuilt. And then Ezra led a group and taught the law as they came back in, kind of helped reform their communal identity. And then Nehemiah led a group in to help rebuild the wall around the city. And so finally, after all of these kind of chief pieces of architecture for kind of resuming life as the worshiping Israel you know, happen, um, more exiles returned, and then they had a series of celebrations to sort of like celebrate the fact that they were returning to life, no longer under the oppressive uh, arm of Babylon and Persia, but now we're, we're back. The people of God in the land together with the temple, here we go with the word of God, and we're ready to return to life as uh, a people in covenant with God. All that to say, they were hungry. They were hungry. For what had been lost. They were hungry for what had been lost. It reminds me of, of in kind of the early uh, months of COVID, whenever, you know, so many people couldn't gather in large groups and things, and just the refrain again and again and again I heard from people was like, oh my gosh, I just long when we can be together again. I just long for when we can worship together, you know, as, as one body in a place like this. I just long, I long, I long. Now the practical... <laughs> The pragmatic reality of how that all played out, I'm not sure how many of us actually seized the moment and were like, oh, this is so good. You know, there's cynicism and all kinds of stuff that crept in. But I'm guessing you have moments like that where just the distance from something important just stirred up that longing. And when you finally got the thing, there was just joyful exuberance on the other side of it. That was this kind of a moment for them. That was this kind of a moment. So what happened? They've gathered, there's this day of anticipation, and they say, hey, we're going to read from the law of God once again as the worshiping community. And Ezra gets up there, and he reads from the law. He reads from the law, and there's declaration, and it sounds like there's teaching, and it sounds like some of the, the Levites and different people were maybe going around trying to, like, as, as he's proclaiming stuff, they're maybe, like, answering questions, and it's just this, like, moment of trying to really absorb what was in the Torah, what was in the early books of the Bible. And they read it for a long, long time, it sounds like. And so um, the point, the point was that so that the people understood the reading. He was teaching, they were answering questions, they were trying to, it says that they gave it and they gave the sense, there was an explanation of the word. The point was that so that the people could understand and then live into what the scriptures declared. Because it's one thing if we just hear it in one ear, out the other. I suppose there's a benefit to that. But the point is not to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Doers of the word. And that's what they were here to do. And then we see that worship breaks out. 
So the people responded physically. I mean, it flashed me back to what all the things we were talking about last week. They responded physically to the reading of the scripture. Some of them, or they all stood. It says the whole group of people stood up for the reading of scripture. Which is why we do that here, actually, quite explicitly. They stood for the reading of scripture, a sign of respect. They were saying amen, amen, agreement spontaneously. Like people just, as they were listening and agreeing with the words of God laid before them, they spoke their agreement with it out loud. Um, what else do we see? They lifted their hands in that posture of reception. They bowed their heads and worshiped in this posture of humility. And so I ask you, I think I might have already said this, I'll say it again. Can you just, can you imagine this response to just the law, like the Torah being read? Like, can you personally imagine responding this way to just a reading of the scripture? We'll come back to that question. We'll come back to that question. So the people, uh, were responding powerfully, and then we see that they were, resp- they were weeping and heartbroken. So there was probably some repenting going on as they're hearing the word Tali. Oh my gosh, we're not living into this. This is not who we are. This is not how we've been formed, etc., etc. And they were weeping. But the leaders kept declaring, this is supposed to be a joyful occasion. Why? Why? Because the law had been restored. The word of God was in their midst. It's like the idea of they were blind, but now they see. Like, all the words of God were coming back to them, and they had the clarity, or at least the leaders had the clarity to know that, like, when the word of God comes to you, it is good news. It is good news. It is meant to be good news. It's meant to be received as good news. And we often think that God is asking for sort of a dour asceticism, you know, we often think, and we've, I feel like our community has been kind of marinating in these ideas for the last year, but we often think naturally that what God really wants is for me to not really enjoy anything and to you know, not be distracted by, you know, the beautiful things I see out in the world. What he really wants me to do is just be like, no, 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 I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to enjoy anything. I'm just going to kind of be, you know, like, you know, sort of like a, a joyless hermit or something like that. That might have been these people's impulse. Like, oh, yes, we're hearing the word of God. We need to just be really sad and somber and whatever. And what, <laughs> what God is wanting, what God is wanting is for his people to become people of joyful celebration at what he has given. Like, all the beauty of the world was created by him as gifts to his people. The word of God is meant not, to, not ultimately to condemn them, but to bring them into fellowship and into relationship and into his mercy and all the blessings that are on the other side of that. Look what he even says. What, is it? what verse is it? Uh, it's there in verse 10. Here's what he says. Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing. For the day is holy to our Lord. Here's a key verse. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Hear that, door of hope. Don't be grieved, but your strength will be found in your joy in association with the Lord. That's what he wants. That's the key to spiritual health and life and vitality. That's why we've been harping on these things so much. Because he wants us to be joyful. That will carry us far in him. So, What is the response supposed to be to the goodness of God and the goodness of God's word? Well, Ezra told them to go and do four things. He says, go your way. He says, go to your houses. Go to your houses. And he says, eat the fat. 
And that's just uh, an expression to say, eat the choicest cuts of meat that you have. Whatever you've been saving for like the special occasion, get it out. Today's the day. We're eating it. We're doing it big. Drink the sweet wine. Drink the best tasting of the wines that you have. Whatever you've been saving, get it out. Today's the day. And sin portions. Don't forget this. Sin portions. What that's saying is that make sure that the poor are able to celebrate too. This isn't, this isn't for the elite. This isn't for only those who are well off. The whole community is supposed to be involved in taking care of one another so that nobody gets left out from this celebration. Sin portions. Make sure the poor get to celebrate too. And the point is, the point is that they are meant to understand the character of God, the story that God is telling, and the words of God in the scriptures are meant to produce joy, rejoicing. If you've been told a story, that that's, you know, a summary of the story of the Bible that's ultimately one of like darkness and sadness and everything is just dour and weird and mean, like you've got the wrong story. The story is one of goodness and joy and a God who's, who is just so lovingly committed to his people that he's going to do everything he possibly can to bring them home. He's going to bring them home. So there's, there's a place for repentance, of course. There is a place for grief. There is a place for godly sorrow. But after that, get on to the joy, <laughs> you know? Like the joy is on the other side. And that's where the strength will be found, friends. That's what this is declaring. So I ask you again. I ask you again. Can you imagine having this response to the Bible being read to you? What is it in us that makes this seem so strange and so out of character? So unrelatable. So that's what they did. That's what they did here. But I think we, we need a little bit more to understand, like, why? Like, like what, what is it that makes going and just, like, having a, a, a nice meal in community a, a, a response to, like, God, a worshipful response? So we need to know the story in which this makes sense. So just very briefly, I want to I mention it at three key points. The first is in creation. We actually did a whole sermon about the, the, the gifts of God found in food and drink this summer. You can go find that online if you missed it. Um, but we, we, we hunkered down on this idea. Remember, the garden, like all of creation, Genesis 1 and 2 goes to painful lengths to illustrate. All of creation was meant to be delightful. In fact, the name Eden means delight. God did not create a flat gray world. He made a world as beautiful as the one we actually have with sunrises and sunsets, the diversity of animal and plant life, the beauty of the color spectrum and the sound spectrum, all of this stuff. He did that on purpose because he is so abundantly overflowing with generosity. He just says, I want my, cre I want my creatures to experience all this. This is who I am and I want them to experience these parts of me through this. So it was a gift, including Verse 29, chapter 1, Genesis, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth. Every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. He just tells them, like, all of this is for you. All of this is for you. And then he adds, I love this little verse. He, I mentioned it last week, too. He just mentions, like, some of these plants, they're just for looks. They're just for beauty. They're just because I thought that was a beautiful thing to look at. Enjoy. Also, some of them are going to taste so good it's going to blow your mind. Go and enjoy those. And they're going to keep you alive. Isn't that amazing? That something like pleasurable and enjoyable is actually going to sustain your body. That's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of God he is. 
So it's all there in creation. We, we mentioned this in the summer, that you could think of the delightful beauty of food as, as like the gifts of the Garden of Eden made consumable. For as beautiful and ordered and luscious and glorious as it is, you get to take those things into yourself and see them actually sustain you physically. That's how God designed it. That is really cool. <laughs> That's really cool. So it goes back to creation, but the theme continues. I'll, I'll just jump ahead to the people of Israel as they're formed. You know, when they're, when they're taken out of Egypt, out of slavery, um, one of the main promises that God gives them, he's like, he's like I'm going to take you out of slavery, and I'm going to take you to a land of, anybody? Milk and honey. Milk and honey. It's a poetic way of saying, um, there's a lot of bees there, <laughs> and there's, there's cows there too. It's a hospitable land to producing food. It's going to be a fertile land. It's going to be a land where you can, you know, have at least a taste of what we were talking about back in the garden out of slavery and into a land of milk and honey. Once God institutes the law among them, did you know this? There were seven annual feasts prescribed in the law to help them remember and celebrate what God had done in their midst. So their whole calendar was built around these feasts. Feasts, actual feasts with actual food that they would eat to celebrate and remember what God had done in their midst. And they're not all the same. Some of, them, some of them are somewhat austere, and some of them are, you know, very interesting. But some of them are just these joyful celebrations of what God has done. You can read about them in Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16, primarily. And so in that, so if that's the kind of relationship God has created for us with food, and if he sees it as important, and then he actually commands the people to feast to remember and to celebrate certain things, then it makes sense that there was also in Israel just a, a culture of organic celebratory feasting as the occasion called for it. Something awesome happens, great, let's go and let's pull out the food, we're gonna have a feast, we're gonna celebrate, like it just was in the air, it was in the culture. And then of course among the feasts, um, maybe we should mention here, the Passover feast was perhaps the crown jewel, the most important, uh, and one that we're gonna pick up here in just a second. All that comes, comes through, continues on, and then let's just talk briefly, touch down with the Messiah, Jesus. So Jesus himself, man of feasting, sh shall we just say. His first mi recorded miracle comes from John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. So a big wedding, blowout, big feast, and you remember the story, what happens? Shows up, he's told, hey, we ran out of wine. We ran out of wine. Mary comes to him and is like, Jesus, can you do something about this? He says, sure. And he has them exchange all this water into wine. Why? Because he wants to keep the feast going. This is the kind of God that he is. He's, he's, helping, he's helping the feast continue. And we have so many examples of just countless meals with people. He goes to weddings. He has meals in tax collectors and sinners' homes. He's supernaturally providing an all-you-can-eat meal in the wilderness to giant crowds a couple of times. You remember that? He has meals with his disciples. He has meals with Pharisees. He has meals with lepers in lepers' homes. He has meals on the seashore, not to mention the many Jewish religious feasts that he certainly would have attended. Some of them we have recorded in the Gospels. I think about the story he tells, one of the most important stories for understanding the Gospel in the parable of the two sons, or sometimes known as the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. What happens? One son demands his, his inheritance early. He runs away. He squanders it. And th these are some of the deepest truths about the Gospel. He takes all that he's been lovingly, freely given by his father. He takes it. 
he burns it to the ground. He ends up in abject poverty, these horrific conditions. He's humbled, he's humiliated, and he thinks to himself, like, I think my father will take me back, maybe even just as a slave, maybe just as a servant. And he comes crawling back to his father. And what does his father do? The father runs, catches him, embraces him, gives him the finest clothes, puts the rings on him, and says to says Rose, bring out the calf, man. We're having a party. We're having a party. This is Jesus' story illustrating the central truth of the gospel. And he, put, he, he captures so many little elements of this. He says, we're having a party. Get out the best, you know, the best food. We're doing it big. And it says that they're singing and dancing, and it's just, it's a party. Like, don't think of some kind of weird, like, oh, everyone's sitting down. You know, like, <laughs> it's a party. It's a real party. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God towards you, in fact, when you trusted him. So, fattened calf, music, dancing. That's the father's response to the son coming back. For all this, you do well to remember, Jesus was constantly being accused by the most religiously uptight of his day of being a glutton and a drunk. That's what they said. And Jesus calls them out and he's like, John the Baptist came and he fasted and you guys said he was weird. Now I'm actually eating and drinking with people. You say I'm, like there's no winning with these people. Jesus was accused. So something about his life made it credible, at least, that they could accuse him of being a glutton and a drunk. And let me be very clear, he was not those things. Jesus did not sin when he consumed alcohol. He did, I, he did not get drunk. He did not lose control of his faculties. He did it responsibly. Nor did he, you know, was he a glutton who just had this deeply improper relationship to the food that he ate. He was not. But it's well worth stating, his, the spirit of celebratory feasting that he had, was a, it did make it a point of critique from others with an untrained eye. That's how lavish he was. That's how bold he was. That's how unafraid of you know, just celebrating and being joyful in this way Jesus was. We do well to remember that. Maybe one last thing we'd say about Jesus was the final Passover, the night he was betrayed. What did he do? He had a Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, but he transformed it. They didn't have a lamb. Remember why? He was going to be the lamb. He's going to be the final lamb. They had this Passover meal, and he, he instituted something that we now call the Lord's Supper or communion. And he says, this is one of the main means of remembrance and encounter with me after my death, resurrection, and ascension. He says, keep doing this. What? Take bread. Take bread. Break it. Distribute it. Eat it. Remember, this is my body given for you. He says, take this. He held up a cup cup with wine. He said, this is the blood. This is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Do this in remembrance of me. Tish Warren, she said in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, she said, the last supper, Jesus tells his disciples to eat in remembrance of him. Of all the things he could have chosen to be done in remembrance of him, Jesus chose a meal. He could have asked his followers to do something impressive or mystical, like climb a mountain or fast for 40 days, have a trippy sweat lodge ceremony. But instead, he picks the most ordinary of acts, eating, through which to be present to his people. He says the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. That central act that Jesus left us to remember him in community. It was a meal. It was a meal.
So that's the story. Obviously, Jesus came after all of this, but I just want you to see the, the, the consistent through line across Scripture that this is important. Food is not something to be ashamed of. This is, this is God's design and his example to us. So we return to Nehemiah. And what we see here again is that this is a feast commanded as a response to the goodness of God. Another word we could say for that is this is a moment of worship. This is a moment of worship that they're being called to step into. So we could think of feasting as worship then, as a celebration of God through physical reminders of his provision. Not, and so provision is important, like just the sustenance needed by, you know, just the basic food we need to keep our body going. That is a grace. That is a gift. That is something everyone needs. That's something that tragically many people right now do not have in our city. But this is even speaking above and beyond that, not just to the sustenance, but also to God's above and beyond sweetness. Like it's not just the bare minimum. It's not just, well, let's just be, you know, like let's not eat, let's not really overdo it because we, we want to be careful. It's, it's saying like, no, some things are just worth killing the fattened calf for. Some things are just worth going all out for. That is the idea of feasting as worship. What, what this declares, this practice of feasting declares, is that God is good, and his word is good. So let's feast like it really is. Not with half measures, but with the full measure. So by way of application, I would maybe say to us, if all of this is true, I'd say let's feast well. Let me be clear, not as an excuse for sin. I'm not commending any of us get drunk. I'm not commending any of us develop super unhealthy relationships with food. But I am saying, as Jesus did, that we engage in bold celebration. Not selfishly, but generously toward others. Maybe we could say, too, not financially irresponsibly. Not like we're going to just burn all the money that we could be using for important things just because we always have to be buying expensive food. That's not the heart of this. I hope that's obvious. That's not the heart of this. It's not financially irresponsibly, but with hospitality and boldly regardless. So there's, there's just a dynamic here, you know? It's not an excuse for sin, but it's bold celebration. Not selfishly, but generously. Not financially irresponsible, but lavish hospitality where we can and where appropriate. So all those things are in tension. Our, our, our job is just to walk into that tension and try to live into it faithfully. So let's feast well. Let's also feast intentionally. We probably, most of us probably already do this in some places in our life, you know, birthdays, stuff like that. We have a habit of like, yeah, we're going to have like a nice meal and celebrate this, this person or whatever it is. That's good. That's good. But let's connect the dots to Jesus. Let's take that same spirit and apply it quite explicitly to the fact, like the greatest thing we have to celebrate. I'm not saying don't celebrate birthdays. I'm not saying don't do it in a really fun way and celebratory way or that that can't be something we connect to Jesus. But I'm saying when's the last time you threw a feast, you threw a party just to celebrate the cross? What would that be? I don't know. I'm hoping some of you send me an invitation. We can figure out what that looks like together because I'm not really sure. But it kind of sounds awesome. It kind of sounds awesome. Let's think of new ways to worship through feasting, and let's do it. For us gathered as a formal kind of church, let's try to self-consciously remember to connect our practice of taking the Lord's Supper, which we do pretty much every week, with what Jesus is saying here. This is a type of feast. This is a type of feast. It's not the only type. 
but let's connect it here. Let's connect it when we think about our community group meals. Again, I'm not saying we have to, you know, it has to be lavish and expensive or whatever, but what an opportunity to come together around the table and to celebrate Jesus together around food in community. Let's take our Sunday potlucks. We're about to do that here in just a bit, aren't we? And let's apply those to this idea. Those are all some just very clear, like, oh man, it's right there. It's right, sitting right there in our midst. We kind of just need to connect some dots and bring a different spirit into it, and we're, we're already doing it. For us scattered, informally, when you're just kind of out and about, I don't know, maybe you need to throw a party. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you need to have some people over. Maybe you need to, I don't, I don't know. Like, let's, let's figure it out. Let's become a people who, for, for whom this idea of celebrating together um, is meaningful, and we're, we're, we're diving into it headfirst. And the last thing I would say is let's feast celebratorily. Like, the idea behind all of this isn't just the stuff, the, the meal for the meal's sake, but, but King Jesus. What, what we're declaring is that he really is that good. He really is that good. And not just good where we, you know, have a tiny little piece of bread and a tiny little... This is significant. But, like, also, sometimes you just, like, go big <laughs> to celebrate Jesus. He really is that good. So let's act like it. That's the idea. That's the idea. He's at least as good as, you know, you know, my 35th birthday party or whatever. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, when's the last time, when's the last time we celebrated Jesus with that type of energy and intentionality? Let's feast celebratorially because he really is that good, and let's act like it. So we'll end here the same way we've ended a couple of times. Um, I want to mention, I want to look forward to what's coming. Um, because feasting is not just all of these things, but it's also a foretaste to the greatest meal that you will ever eat. Um, I, I love what Robert Farrar Capon said in his, his great book, uh, Supper of the Lamb. He said, for all its greatness, and he says, trust me, I am the last man on earth to sell it short. The created order cries out for further greatness still. The most splendid dinner, the most exquisite food, the most gratifying company arouse more appetites than they satisfy. They do not slake man's thirst for being. They wet it beyond all bounds. Dogs eat to give their bodies rest. Man dines and sets his heart in motion. All tastes fade, of course, but not the taste for greatness they inspire. Each lobe escapes us, but not the longing it provokes for a better convivium, a higher session. We embrace the world in all its glorious solidity, yet it struggles in our, various, in our very arms, declaring itself a pilgrim world, and through the lattices and windows of its nature discloses cities more desirable still. Now, is that just some beautiful writing and some interesting ideas, or does the Word of God declare that? It's a good question. You should always ask. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread... And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, listen, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, he's saying, you guys are going to keep doing this. I'm not. This is my last time to drink of this wine. Because I'm about to go to the cross, I'm about to be ascended to heaven, but there is going to be a day coming where we drink together again. 
and it's in my Father's kingdom. What day was Jesus waiting for? Revelation tells us. Chapter 19, verse 6. I heard what seemed to be, these are the words of John, a great voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sounds of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We're told, the language is used, Jesus hints at it in the Gospels, we're mentioned multiple times in Revelation, we are waiting for a final, the, the ultimate feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb. When God and humanity are finally reunited, all that was lost in the fall is fully reconsummated. And I take it quite literally. If Jesus is saying, I'm not drinking wine until then, that this is a literal supper. Like, we will sit down, all the people of God across all cultures, all races, all times, whatever. Everyone who's bent the knee to Jesus will be there around his table with him as the host. The greatest feast you can ever imagine is coming. And I love this. Uh, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those. You want to be there. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then listen to this. John, <laughs> John writes, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So there's something so beautiful about this picture John is seeing of this feast that he's tempted to start worshiping this angel. And he's a pretty theologically sophisticated guy, right, John? I think so. It's so overwhelming. It's so beautiful. It's so glorious that he's like, he loses bearings for a second. The angel's like, no, 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 no. Don't worship me. That's the one who's responsible for this. Worship God. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That passage concludes. What this means is that all the nourishment and joy of food now is a foretaste of the coming feast we will share with our King Jesus when we're finally fully united with him to mark his final victory over sin and evil and death. It is the beginning of the new creation and the new story to be told. The glimpse that John witnessed was so beautiful and rich, he was tempted to worship the angelic messenger. That's how good it is. That's how good it is. So today, there's a place for all this. There's a place for frugality. There's a place for fasting. There's a place for financial responsibility. There's a place for feasting boldly and extravagantly. You know, you give yourself over to any one extreme all the time, there's unhealth there. But friends, let me just, all that's stated. May we be a feasting people because we have a joyful, glorious God and our strength will be found in the joy of the Lord. Amen? My final words are, if you don't know Jesus, this probably sounds pretty weird, but maybe it sounds exciting. My call to you is to come to this Jesus in faith. See that he has nothing but love and grace and mercy for you. Even on your worst day, nothing but love and grace and mercy. Come into his family and you get to come await this day with us. If you do know Jesus, let's remember that the good news of the gospel actually is good. <laughs> it's actually this good. Like, 
He is this generous. He is this loving. He is this gracious. He is this merciful. He is this abundant and extravagant. So let's act like that. Amen? All right, let's pray.